Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Peter Sommer, and I'll be acting as the chair um, this evening. This is an LSE public event. Um, those of you uh, not from the LSE, welcome to the LSE. Um, <coughs> uh, one or two sort of bits to uh, tell you before we get started. Um, it, the intention is that this is going to be recorded. Um, we hope there's going to be a podcast emerging from it. And what you need to bear in mind is that if um, whatever you say is not on the microphone, it won't be on the podcast. So the fact that people here in the uh, auditorium can hear you uh, isn't going to be quite enough for our purposes. Um, I also need to tell you uh, a little bit uh, that the uh, LSE has a code of practice on free speech, and all that means is we're very keen on free speech, but within the scope of the law. Uh, the uh, <laughs> um, the uh, event is going to last um, an hour and a half. It's going to be approximately 45 minutes from the speaker and then 45 minutes for um, Q and A. Uh, I'm not going to spend very much time uh, introducing the speaker, but for the benefit of the small number of you who have strayed in without being entirely clear what's going to happen, um, our speaker this evening is Misha Glenny. He's a former journalist on The Guardian and on the BBC, uh, specialising in uh, Eastern Europe and in the Balkans. Um, he's uh, written a number of books. Um, the one before, the one that we're going to be discussing this evening, is called McMafia, and it was an examination of uh, uh, the way in which organised crime has been developing. And in a sense, the book that um, he's just published, and what he's going to be speaking about this evening, is a sort of a follow-on to that, but taken into cyberspace. Um, Last thing to tell you is, uh, we've lost it already, um, there is a, um, a hashtag for people who are interested in, uh, uh, in Twittering, um, I don't know whether we can get that back up there, uh, we can't, I'll, <coughs> I'll try and uh, get your information about that a little bit later on. I think it's we coming. We get that back, right, oh, yeah. there's the suggested hashtag Twitter cyber. Um, we can now go back to where we were, and as I said, um, the um, previous book, McMafia, the new book, Dark Markets, replicated nicely on the screen. Peter, thank you very much indeed. I hope the microphone's working, but uh, <coughs> yes, I think it is. Just wanted to check that. So, uh, good evening. Um, in this presentation, I wanted to share some of the... Uh, research that I've been doing uh, over the last few years. Um, now, I have to say that this is not the story of the book, as it were, um, but issues that uh, relating to the book um, that uh, came out when I was doing the research. So, and I want to start with uh, a simple definition about the three fundamental threats to networked computer systems. And the most uh, common of these is cybercrime. Now, much of this is called high volume, low impact. And by that, we usually refer to the fraud in credit and debit cards in particular. And this is also known uh, by the phrase carding. Carding remains extremely popular as an activity, but it is by no means the only form of cybercrime, uh, as we shall see. 
Now, secondly, we have the threat to businesses. And the threat to businesses takes two basic forms. Targeted attacks against uh, companies and corporations with the aim of extracting money, either through stealth operations or some type of extortion. And then there is the second form, cyber-industrial espionage, whereby competitors seek to penetrate a competitor's system, companies seek to penetrate a competitor's system in order to gain intelligence about products or strategy. On the whole, we know very little about this area because it's not yet compulsory in most territories to report breaches and companies are reluctant to do so for fear of damage to their image and possibly their shareholders' dividends. But it is estimated that, that roughly, this accounts roughly for about 33-34% of malfeasance on the web. And finally, we have the third sector, which is cyber warfare, the threat to state security from other state and non-state actors. And one of the things I want to do in this presentation is explain where the linkages between all of these lie. And this is uh, the primary one, the um, uh, criminal hackers and crackers uh, who... Uh, are usually found behind, at some stage, behind most serious uh, cyber attacks. Now, these days, it's true that you can buy so-called off-the-shelf malware and start your own criminal business with no real hacking uh, ability. But at some stage, we'll find behind any cyber attack, the brains of an advanced hacker have been uh, employed. As in my previous work, uh, McMafia, as Peter mentioned, um, the bulk of uh, the research, or a lot of it for um, Dark Market, is based upon conversations with people involved uh, either in the past or still today in criminal activity. And for me, understanding their motives is a key element in combating the threats in cyber. And it's worth uh, remembering at the outset that a majority of hackers are not motivated in the first instance by money. Uh, I will also offer a few suggestions throughout the talk about how we might combat the real threads, threats spreading across, across the net. Now let me concentrate first of all on cybercrime because this is the most pervasive threat. Uh, the latest annual global losses to cybercrime lie anywhere between $100 billion and $1 trillion. And that latter figure is now the figure used by the White House. In Britain, the Office of Cybersecurity places a figure of losses here at £27 billion. Now, what this really points to is the fact that nobody has a clue how much we lose to uh, malfeasance on the web. These figures are often just plucked out of the air. Uh, because they sound good. Uh, there is no doubt that we face real problems and real losses, but quantifying them is extremely difficult. And so I would take all figures like that with a pinch of salt. Um, now, as I said, cybercrime comes in all shapes and sizes. You have the credit, credit and debit cards, which represent the low-hanging fruit. But then you have people with the ability to crack bank accounts, to roam the databases of corporations following a successful phishing attack. 
And I'd like to introduce you to the wonderful world of scareware, which is incredibly lucrative. This is the story of the dynamic Ukrainian company, Innovative Marketing. Now, most of the young Ukrainians working at the Kiev headquarters of Innovative Marketing had no idea that they were involved in a major financial fraud. They were youngsters who believed that they were involved in a vibrant startup company dealing in path-breaking software. The bosses, interestingly, were not actually Ukrainian. They were Swedish and Indian. Innovative marketing would send out malware that would prompt your browser to trigger pop-ups, warning you that your computer was compromised by viruses. Help was at hand, however, because IM offered a range of products supposedly to combat these terrible infections. Here is one of their standards, Malware Destructor 2009. It claims to outperform the market leaders such as Kaspersky, F-Secure and Norton. And look at those awards it's garnered in the bottom right hand of the screen. How many customers actually go on to PC Pro or CNET to check whether they've actually tested Malware Destructor 2009? But IM didn't restrict themselves to antivirus suites. Here's one of my favorites, Ecology Green PC. If you download this software, it says it will reduce power consumption, minimize CO2 emissions, and perform at optimal eco level. All for $39.95 a year's license. Or for those of you with a real conscience, a snip at $79.95 for a lifetime of eco-computing. Now, to install one of these products, you first of all had to remove any existing anti-malware protection that you had. <laughs> Once the new software was on your PC, however, it did precisely nothing. And that's if you were lucky. Because some of the products were also loaded with new malware, enabling a command and control computer to take over the victim's machine, which was in any event now vulnerable to all manner of viruses and trojans zipping around the net. And of course, you were paying for the privilege. This is one of Innovative's receipts for 50 euros. Amazingly, for a group of uh, skilled hackers, uh, Innovative Marketing left a port wide open on their main server, meaning one could surf through their data at will without breaking the law. And this is what a friend of mine did, and he came across this Aladdin's cave of material and he was able to work out by collating all the receipts that he discovered on their server that over a three-year period, they had a revenue in excess of $500 million. So these are really vast sums. Let's take a look, closer look at that uh, bill. Hmm, look, they have call centers. Yes, would you believe it? Innovative marketing was making so much money that it established a German-language call center in Poland a French one in Algeria, and an English-speaking call center, guess where, of course, in India. Welcome to Customer Support Service. Thank you for calling Customer Support Service, Mike. How can I help you? Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Todd Marble. I called about 10 minutes ago uh, because I had purchased your Virus Remover 2008 program, and I'm still having trouble getting it onto my PC. Uh, could I have your order number, sir? Yes, I can give that to you. Are you ready? Now, Mike, our man in Hyderabad, is asking for the order number because that will tell him which particular fake product he is pretending to assist with. 
20 minutes after he first called for help, Todd Marvel is exhausted. He's been driven to distraction by the call center operator, and he doesn't yet know that his computer is now riddled with viruses. You're not listening. You're not listening to me. I'm trying to shut my computer down because I cannot go anywhere. It's locked up on me, so I'm going to, I'm going to pull the plug on it and shut it down. No, sir. No, sir. Kindly, kindly listen to me. So what I suggest you is you please restart your computer in the safe mode with networking, sir. To be honest with you, I am not a computer literate type of guy. I don't know how to shut it down in safe mode. So, well, in that case, what I suggest is you just contact your system vendor, sir. They might help you out with it, okay? Yes, poor old Todd Marvel has to contact his system vendor. I don't suppose he'll have much joy with them. So cybercrime can be very big money, but let me be frank, any data that's collected by law enforcement, tax authorities, or private sector companies are bound to underestimate the extent of cybercrime's real value for two reasons. One, individuals and companies are often very reluctant to report they've been victim of cybercrime. Two, people often have no idea that they've been victims of cybercrime. And this is largely because of the fabled botnet uh, in which millions of users around the world become unwittingly complicit in computer crime as their computers are infected by a virus which subordinates them to a command and control machine run by the criminal. He then uses the computing power of the so-called zombies. A botnet can comprise as many computers as... Uh, as it likes, up to 100,000 PCs around the world, that's uh, not impossible, to send spam to attack rivals and to extort companies. But one person who became only too painfully aware of his status as a victim of cybercrime was this man, Roger Mildenhall, an Australian living in South Africa. Here he is, back in Perth, standing in front of one of his two houses that represent his pension plan. Just eight months ago, he received a call from his neighbour who told him that his first house had recently been sold and the contracts were about to be exchanged on the second one. The news came as a complete and utter shock to Mr. Mildenhall. It transpired that Nigerian hackers had broken into his email account, accessed all manner of sensitive data, and then contacted Mr. Mildenhall's local estate agent in Perth, Western Australia. Well, I thought I was having my leg pulled, and I'm sure that they were having fun at me, but uh, it turned out that it was all true. Scammers posing as Mr. Mildenhall had told his real estate agent he wanted to sell, even producing duplicates of the deeds to the house. He rushed back to Perth to find a second property he owned was also about to be sold, and convinced the agent to cancel that sale. Now, that first house was worth about $350,000. Without having to leave their homes, scammers from Nigeria had sold a house in Western Australia which didn't belong to them, it belonged to a man living in South Africa, and then they transferred the proceeds to a bank in China from where it was successfully laundered. And this was a Gmail account, and so it came under American jurisdiction. So which police force is responsible for investigating that crime? The Nigerians, the South Africans, the Americans, the Australians, or the Chinese? It's a law enforcement nightmare. In the case of poor Mr. Mildenhall, he is living it right now as we speak. Let's just have another quick listen to him. Okay, so the thieves had hacked into his email, but had the real estate company really done everything it could to prevent this fraud? Everything that they'd heard seemed plausible, 
But uh, they saw me and said, oh yes, that is you. And then I showed them all my signatures, passport, driver's license, whatever. And we looked at the offer and acceptance and they said, but that's not your signature. And I said, that's what I've been trying to tell you all along. Ah, yes. And that's because the internet is above all a tool of convenience. And so when an estate agent receives the title deeds to the house, it assumes via email that it's genuine. So we've developed an extreme dependence on it, such that the real estate agent in this case forgot to question the basics. Is this Mr. Mildenhall's signature? It doesn't take too much to check up, but when you've received that slew of documents via email, why would you question it? Well, you wouldn't because our behavior has changed fundamentally. We have become very sloppy. We have become far too lax. In terms of security, the internet is in some respects only as strong as its weakest link. And there are almost 3 billion end users at the moment. And each day we acquire more handheld devices with more power and more points of entry for bad people. So in order to establish some sort of secure regime on the internet, we have to think about changing our behavior. And I'm not really being overdramatic here. Would you, for example, go up to a stranger on the street and start telling them about your likes, your dislikes, what you think of your boss, your sexual orientation, whether you've recently been on a drunken spree or taken drugs, certainly handing out your email, maybe your phone and even your real address. You wouldn't dream of it. But most of us appear only too happy to share this information on the web with half the world. So in some respects, we the ordinary users are the primary vulnerability which can be exploited by all manner of nefarious activity. This little German film illustrates the point. Schmidt, Peters, Jansen, Hermanns. Is your son home? Yes, he's up in his room. Come in. Hi, is Klausi here? Yeah, upstairs. Well then, we'll go up and try out some kinky stuff. Yeah, okay. Cool location. Is this little Anna? You've got a nice bunny. Come on, I'll show you a real bunny. In real life, you would protect your children. So why not protect them on the internet? This is perhaps the most worrying aspect to all of this. The people we're dealing with on the other side of the fence. They are smart, they're ingenious, they're creative. And I can tell you that on one level, they are people you'd enjoy hanging out with. And they are way ahead of the game. This is how they were advertising themselves on the net ten years ago when they founded Carter Planet, the first ever white uh, major criminal website. came to Carter Planet for a variety of reasons. To buy and sell debit and credit card data. To buy and sell skimming machines to attach to ATMs 
in order to read the card data, then to buy and sell, uh, and sell card cloning equipment. But they would also exchange news and about the latest viruses, trojans and worms out there and how effective they were. They would also use the forum to denounce criminals who were ripping off other criminals and to denounce suspected law enforcement officers working cyber. They would also read and swap tutorials about committing fraud. So <clears throat> this is the, um, uh, the first of these operations. And the other thing that uh, Carter Planning came up with, which industrialized um, cybercrime on the web, was the so-called escrow system. Your biggest problem if you're a cyber criminal is working out how do you trust the person you're doing business with. It. It's axiomatic that they're untrustworthy because they're criminals. So what the founders, the administrators of Carter Planet from Ukraine did was to set up an escrow facility. The five administrators, or the family as they were called, would accept from a vendor who, say, had 5,000 stolen credit card details that he wanted to sell, uh, that he would send them to the escrow officer, and the escrow officer would then accept the money from the purchaser. The escrow officer would then test anywhere in the world whether these cloned credit cards worked, and if they did work, he would then release the money to the vendor and the product to the purchaser, and he would keep the money uh, from the testing as a, um, uh, for, the, for the service. Now, one of the people who used the... Um, sites like Carter Planet was a, a Turkish mega hacker called Chow and he used Carter Planet and other sites to advertise the sale of his skimming machines. Hi, my name is Chow. I'm developer of skimming devices. I work for you 24 hours a day and make the best devices for skimming. You'll be able to make money in this business with me and my crew. A lot of people ask me how to choose the place to work with Skimmer. Choosing the place to work is one of the most important things what you're gonna do. There are many nightclubs around. Go into the place, looking around to see what's going on. For example, we see ADM with many tourists, taking the statistics, taking the pictures of ADM and of what's around the place. Find a nightclub where young people are spending money of their parents. Try to not install in the mornings. People are vigilant at this time. Try not to work in places where 250 people a day are going through. Do not install in the districts with many illegal immigrants. So that's all about it. Now Chow sent his skimmers from his domestic factory in Istanbul all over the world. He was charging about $7,000 a shot and he made millions from this business. So Carter Planet and its ilk were essentially criminal department stores plus an information for the underground rolled into one. Uh, as I explained, Carter Planet also introduced the escrow system which was incredibly important. Carter Planet gave way to a host of other carding sites like uh, Shadow Crew, Mazafaka and Dark Market to name a few. So the first decade of the new century saw a sustained attack on banking and credit card systems around the world. Let's have a look at some of the perpetrators. They are very different types of criminal, in my opinion, from those found in traditional organized crime syndicates. We're going to concentrate on six of these characters, starting with Dmitry Golubov, script, 
a.k.a. Script, that is, founder of Carter Planet, born in Odessa, Ukraine in 1982. He developed his social and moral compass on the Black Sea port in the 1990s. As an accomplished computer user, Dimitri simply adapted the gangster capitalism of his hometown to the World Wide Web. Then comes Renukant, Supermania, Jilzy, moderator on Mazafaka and co-founder of Dark Market, born in Colombo, Sri Lanka. As an eight-year-old, he and his parents fled from the Sri Lankan capital as Sinhalese mobs roamed the city looking for Tamils like Renu to murder. So his parents sent him as a refugee to seek political asylum in Britain. As a 13-year-old with no English and bullied at school, he escaped into a world of computers. Here he was able to demonstrate his great technical skills, particularly in maths, but lonely and lacking in confidence, he was easily led astray by his newfound friends online. Convicted last year of credit card and mortgage fraud, he will be in Wormwood Scrubs for another year. Uh, then we have Matrix, a moderator on IACA, the International Association for the Advancement of Criminal Activity and administrator of Dark Market. Born in southern Germany into a stable and well-respected middle-class family, his obsessions with games in his early teens led him to hacking, finding large servers to store the games he had cracked and pirated. His slide into criminality was incremental, and by the time he started to question this activity, he was in far too deep. Then we have Max Butler, a.k.a. My, my Iceman, mastermind of Carter's Market, born in Meridian, Idaho. Butler was one of the best so-called penetration testers working with companies and corporations from Santa Clara, California. That means he would be paid to try and break into companies' um, systems so that they could see how secure they were. But he also worked voluntarily with the FBI. Now, in the late 1990s, Butler identified a major vulnerability that affected all U.S. government networks, including those at nuclear research facilities. He patched up these uh, vulnerabilities, preventing a major security embarrassment for the U.S. But as an inveterate, almost congenital hacker, he left an opening in the systems which only he could use. And this then resulted in his conviction. At his open prison, he came under the influence of financial fraudsters who persuaded him to work for them on his release. And in his reincarnation as Iceman, he was regarded as one of the most brilliant hackers ever to come under law enforcement scrutiny. But he was caught, and this man with a planetary-sized brain is now serving a 13-year sentence in Lompoc, California. Then comes Adewale Taiwo, a.k.a. Freddie Bibi, master bank account cracker, born in Abuja, Nigeria. He set up his prosaically entitled news group, bankfrauds at yahoo.co.uk, <laughs> before entering Britain in 2005 to take a master's in chemical engineering at Manchester University. He impressed in the private sector as a really gifted specialist in the creation of chemical applications for the oil industry, but he simultaneously ran a worldwide bank and credit card fraud network that was worth millions until his arrest in 2008. He was deported from Doncaster to Nigeria in April of this year. And then finally we have Chataev Yapan, the person behind Chow, that cartoon character you saw before, an administrator of Dark Market from Istanbul. Arrested in October 2008, he had absconded from prison in 2005 and created 
one of the most uh, effective and sophisticated security arrangements yet encountered by police among global cyber criminals. He was only caught because of uh, a very prosaic mistake by one of his uh, associates. He was not caught digitally, but through um, old-fashioned policing me methods. Now, these characters are from very different social and economic circumstances, but they share the following characteristics. They were obsessive game players. They all demonstrated unusually advanced ability in maths and or sciences. They all developed their hacking skills in their early to mid-teens, and it must be, must be remembered that at this age, the moral compass of these young men has not yet been fully formed, meaning that they were easy prey to cyber demagogues or criminals. Three of the hackers, Jilsey, Matrix, and Iceman, were not motivated primarily by money. And finally, their personal and communication skills in the real world were weak at best, script and chow aside. I'm fairly, I'm fairly convinced that were it not for the internet, Jilsey, Matrix, and Iceman would never have been involved in any form of conventional crime. Now, as I noted earlier, we are investing phenomenal resources, especially in the United States, into cyber defense and cyber security. Figures that I've been collating recently uh, from consultancy firms suggest that the annual spend, and this is excluding spending in Russia and China, is something in the region now of $100 billion a year, and that is uh, likely to double within the next six years or so. About $10 billion has been earmarked for the newly operational cyber, U.S. Cybercom. Now, this means that cyber has been designated as the fifth domain of military operations uh, by the Department of Defense, along with land, sea, air, and space. And interestingly, it is the first ever man-made uh, uh, military domain. Billions, too, are going into law enforcement units, be it the FBI, the Secret Service, as always engaged in interagency squabbling over turf and money, or the serious organized crime agency, the Met, the City of London Police. Now, these people can investigate, but they cannot protect. And in particular, they can't really protect the private sector. So while cybercrime fighters are dealing with activists on sites like Carter Planet, the corporate sector has to look after its own. Failure to do so can be very costly. All these companies here, and one country indeed, have been major victims of internet-related crime. Just three months ago, Sony announced that it will suffer an extra $170 million loss on its bottom line this year because of the spectacular hack of the PlayStation Network. And this does not take into account the losses suffered by individual customers. It is not an exaggeration to say that the extreme outcome of a company going under as a result of a cyber attack is a genuine possibility. But security, of course, doesn't stop with the private sector. America's most powerful cybersecurity institution is the National Security Agency, the NSA. As the power of this agency expands, it should be remembered that it is not unproblematic, above all with regard to individual liberties and personal privacy. 
The reason I highlighted the hackers earlier on is, is that I think we are missing a trick by not diverting more resources into understanding their psycho and social profile. Along with the intelligence agencies, uh, this is the other group which migrates between the three pillars of cyber malfeasance, cyber crime, cyber industrial espionage, and cyber warfare. At the moment, we are not engaged in sufficient research. I am convinced that we will save ourselves a lot of money by identifying hackers before they become a problem, i.e., while they are still at school. And right now, the demand for smart professionals in the, out, uh, in the IT security sector far outstrips supply. If we are to meet the challenges in cyber, then we're going to need help from the people who know the threats best, and that is the hackers. That's incidentally what the Russians do, what the Chinese do, and what the Israelis do. On the plus side, governments are now aware that cybersecurity is a major infrastructural issue. Before long, there is very little that we will be able to do without the mediation of the Internet. Given that reality, a government which ignores the issue of security is failing categorically in its duty. But the greatest vulnerability of all is not electronic, but human, the careless end user. The cybersecurity industry is notoriously poor, not to say hopeless, at communicating why their work is important. They speak in an arcane language which leads the eyes of ordinary mortals to glaze over when they hear it. This has got to change. Ordinary people must find a way of identifying with cybersecurity and changing their behavior where necessary. I want to end by talking briefly about Stuxnet. If anybody thought that cyber threats are a joke, after Stuxnet, they have to change their mind. Mikko Hippanen, Chief Research Officer of F-Secure, one of the most respected IT security firms, called it, quote, the most important development in cyber over the last decade, unquote. Stuxnet makes it very clear that states around the world are investing considerable resources in developing some very deadly cyber weapons. And yet, while Stuxnet may be a game-changer, when broken down, researchers from SecDev in Canada found it was cobbled together from existing viruses that were common products from the criminal underworld. So we need to focus on understanding how the triple threat of cybercrime, cyber-industrial espionage, and cyber-warfare are linked, not just digitally, but politically and socially. And we need to educate people so that they will realize how these issues affect all of us. But above all, and this is, to my mind, the biggest challenge, we need to do this without turning our society into a police state. Thanks very much for listening to me and I'm happy to ask you a question. We'll take questions. Um, please wait until the um, microphone comes to you. Remember what I said right at the beginning. This is going to be um, this is being recorded. So if you don't speak to the microphone, it won't be on the recording. Um, in the front here, please. And if you could um, say who you are. Oh, oh. right. If you could um, uh, say who you are and where you're from, that would be also a, a great help. 
Hi, my name is Val Stevenson. I'm not from anywhere in particular. I wonder if you could talk uh, briefly about the dark web, in particular drugs and gun running therein. I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I haven't been looking at Darknet and, uh, uh, and the, uh, the, the drugs issue. Um, and so I can't talk about it with any authority. Peter might be able to say more about this than I can. It's your show today. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to uh, start. An article appeared about this in The Guardian about three weeks ago, whatever it was, and ever since then I've been bombarded. I mean, there are Questions. plenty of other um, underground um, websites now. Um, uh, Dark Market was obviously a game changer in the way in which it um, operated, but uh, I don't, some of you may have seen um, Channel 4 News did something on uh, Silk Road, which uh, uses an unusual form of electronic money as its, uh, its mechanism, and they're certainly selling drugs, or they were when uh, we looked at it a few weeks ago. So there are plenty of other things there. Uh, gentlemen in the front here. Um, well, actually, it wasn't so much a question, but it was something that you said earlier. Um, about a week ago, I had a telephone call from a gentleman with, um, shall we say, Indian voice, who was from London, warning me that my computer was full of viruses. And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, oh, we know this. So I said, well, thank you very much. I won't let you come into my computer to clear it for me. So I immediately rang my helpline of, um, of broadband and they said, don't touch him. And they said, could you find out where it was ringing from? And I've, I've already been warned that if you ring 1471 and it says um, you were contacted at such and such an hour and we can't tell you from where, don't touch it. So in other words, that was what he was up to. He was trying to get into my computer to help me. That's uh, it. So be warned. In inverted commas. I mean, the, the interesting thing about this is, is that the bulk of cybercrime is actually perpetrated not through uh, digital um, work, as it were, but through what is known as social engineering. And social engineering, which is incredibly important in understanding this, uh, is basically the art of persuading people to do things which are objectively not in their, not in their uh, interest. And that's the whole philosophy behind... Uh, phishing scams um, when people are trying to persuade you to do certain things, click on links and, and uh, uh, that sort of thing. And this is actually interesting. I mean, uh, most of the people, not all, that I deal with in dark market uh, belong to what I call the first circle of cyber criminals, which are the hackers uh, who tend to be technically gifted but who are not uh, often great practitioners of social engineering. But Behind them, there's what I call the second circle of people who may not be technically very gifted, certainly technically gifted, more techni technically gifted than a lot of the people in this room, uh, quite possibly. But they are very, very good at manipulating not just the hackers to work on their behalf, but very good at manipulating us, rather as in the case of innovative marketing with their malware pop-up, which is a digital version of, of what you're man was doing calling, uh, calling you up. The really interesting characters, and actually Chow is one of those characters, are those who are technically incredibly gifted and they also have the ability to empathize as well, which in psychological terms meaning, means generally that you're dealing with a psychopathic, psychopathic personality. And those psychopaths who are quite rare 
uh, in the criminal world of the internet are nonetheless ex extremely effective uh, and, and influential, both amongst their peers and in terms of how they engage with potential victims. Um, there's, if you want to follow that up, there's a book by Kevin Mitnick, who is um, considered to be one of the great technical hackers, but he was also um, a great social engineer. And um, the book, I think, is called Ghost in the Wire, um, certainly out in the States at the moment. Um, you do need to be rather a techie to get through it. Um, if you are a techie, then the explanations of what he did are absolutely fascinating. I suspect um, if you're not terribly interested in techie things, it's going to be a bit of a put-off, but um, the, it's the combination of the social engineering skills and the techie skills that uh, really sort of gave him his um, power. Um, another question? Um, up at the top there. Oh. Sorry. Um, I was just wondering if you envisage any um, kind of um, international uh, governance organisations or, or where the international community can head um, in terms of um, governing international criminals um, in the cyber world. Well, that is a really, really big question in which uh, a lot of people in the civil service, in the private sector and in law enforcement are now engaged in trying to find an answer. And of course they face tremendous difficulties, the fundamental one being is, is the very genius of the internet is its global interconnectedness, uh, but law enforcement agents are still uh, defined by their territorial jurisdiction. Now there are some ways that some uh, uh, law enforcement agents, uh, agencies get over that, so for example the United States claims jurisdiction over any transaction that takes place in uh, US dollars. Uh, and so uh, if it, even if it happens on German territory, they say that that is a prosecutable, prosecutable crime by uh, US law enforcement uh, or US uh, prosecutors. Uh, but it is extremely difficult to pursue this type of crime when you have often awkward relationships with uh, the law enforcement agencies in the place where it's perpetrated. So, for example, when I was researching this, one of the things that I was told fairly flatly by an officer of the uh, Serious Organized Crime Agency was that collaboration on cyber, crisis, cyber cases, which is a big thing for soccer, between the UK and uh, uh, Russia was the collateral victim of the Litvinenko case. Um, <clears throat> for a quite specific socio-political reasons, the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, uh, was where cybercrime first emerged in the late 90s and the early 2000s as a, as a major source. I have to stress now that you find cybercrime absolutely uh, everywhere, but uh, uh, because you had um, high level of education, uh, this is taking Russia for example, after 1990, you had social and economic collapse in Russia, but you had a highly educated uh, population and they were particularly good at maths and sciences. Uh, and very quickly they understood how they could get access to the, the internet 
the same time they were being bombarded by images of cultural globalization and the sort of consumerism that they were being encouraged to engage with, uh, they had no money to do it. That's somebody like Golubov in, in Ukraine. He thought, you know, why shouldn't I go onto the net and surf for, surf for credit card databases? And if American companies are so stupid as to leave these credit card databases wide open, as far as I'm concerned, they're... Um, uh, their legitimate, their legitimate targets. Um, uh, so that's on the sort of uh, criminal basis. But then we have, uh, you know, even more complicated area when it comes into private sector and also state security. The Russians, for example, have been looking for a cyber, a military cyber treaty for several years now. The United States are very wary of this. Uh, you're beginning to see moves by states to come up with some form of regulation uh, of cyber activity between states, but you still have the problem of non-state uh, actors. And really, in a sense, the only way, the only thing at the moment that is holding back real uh, confrontation between, say, China and the US uh, over the cyber issue is the fact that in the real world, cyber, uh, China and the US are mutually deeply dependent. And so this acts as a huge de deterrent on either of them uh, deploying cyber weaponry uh, against each other. But since we've, as we've seen with Stuxnet, what Stuxnet actually meant is that one security service, or maybe a combination of security services, and we don't know who it is, although we can make educated guesses, although opinions on this differ, one or a combination of security services have stuck there, have put their hand up in the air and said, we have this technology and we are prepared to deploy it against a nuclear facility uh, in Iran. And in one respect, Stuxnet has been the starting gun for uh, uh, um, an arms race uh, in, in cyber, which the United States is still ahead of, but with China, Russia, and Israel and not far behind, and Germany, the UK, and France also developing sophisticated, sophisticated weaponry. So this is an area where <clears throat> we need to start moving towards some sense of the extent of the problem, what we can actually do about it, and, and what the threats are uh, potentially. At the moment, you tend to have two positions of people who say that the world is about to fall on our head, and people who say this whole thing is, is, is cooked up as a conspiracy and we shouldn't have to worry about it. Personally, I believe we stand somewhere in the middle that you have to avoid alarmist talk, but at the same time you cannot pretend that there are not very damaging things out there on the web. Yes, very quickly on international um, cooperation, there obviously is a cybercrime treaty, otherwise then is a treaty of Budapest, and the way that works is that um, people who sign up to it, and the UK has just signed, um, are required to have legislation um, which is roughly comparable with each other. In other words, similar sort of format, so that makes extradition a lot easier, and also cooperation on sharing of evidence. Um, so that's the good news. The not-so-good news is that um, the idea of having an international cyber cops organisation, um, although it sounds very attractive, 
attractive. Uh, the moment you tell people that means that um, the police force of another country is going to be able, without telling anybody, to come into your country and start investigating, at that point people start raising the question of sovereignty. And the other thing to note is that uh, on November the 1st and 2nd there will be a big uh, conference at the Queen Elizabeth, Con Queen Elizabeth um, uh, Conference Centre in Westminster hosted by the uh, Foreign Secretary and he's hoping there to establish various sort of norms and take forward the sort of agenda that um, uh, Misha's just been talking about. Um, Questions? Um, could we take the lady in green at the back there, please? Thank you. Um, we've seen um, the effect of what the IRA bombings in the 90s did to the state of democracy, to um, the, what terrorism um, since then has done to further to erode, uh, to give an excuse to erode our, our rights. Um, obviously the, the, there are real problems that, that underlie all of that uh, as, as a reason to why it happened, but uh, um, I, I'm very interested in, in your last comments about what all of this means for further erosion of, of rights and, and a way of life in the West. Um. I think we have to take privacy and civil liberties uh, extremely seriously and I am very wary uh, in uh, the Western world of states trying to um, accord to themselves uh, greater rights for the infiltration of people's network systems uh, than they already have. I think you have to think very, very carefully about this. Certainly you want this to be done under the oversight of the courts. Now, <clears throat> we have some real uh, anomalies here because, for example, uh, uh, Google's networks and Facebook's networks come under US jurisdiction. And if an FBI agent wants to look at uh, anybody in the world's uh, Gmail account, uh, they can do so if they get a, a warrant from a U.S. court, from a federal court, uh, to do so. And within 24 hours, Gmail, uh, Google is compelled to hand over the keys, as it were, to that Gmail account. Now, if you're a British officer, which is, uh, you know, from an agency relatively closely allied to the United States, you get on very well, and you need to look at a Gmail account. Um, it will take you anything up to six months before an American court grants a foreign law enforcement agency the right to get into that uh, account. So you have a real discrepancy about how these investigations take place. And it means, of course, that the U.S. with Google and Facebook, the two largest depositories of personal data in the world, hold a tremendous advantage uh, over other countries. It's one of the reasons why Hillary Clinton announced that Google was considered effectively a national security <laughs> uh, asset and where issues of privacy and issues of uh, uh, internet commerce melt into the issue of uh, national security. So these become very uh, complex issues. 
But I think the thing which concerns me most of all is uh, looking at countries where there is not proper <coughs> judicial oversight <coughs> in the web, on the web, uh, particularly Russia and China. Uh, Russia, which has a truly Orwellian way of monitoring everything that goes on on the internet uh, in its uh, country, a system known as SORM2, and China, of course, with its great firewall, which is designed uh, in public to keep out pornography and other cultural contamination from the West, but as we really know, is there in order to ensure uh, that there is no political contamination over the internet in China. And those are good examples as are some of the things that have happened in Iran in the past few years uh, of how the internet should not be used. And so a central principle for me uh, is the issue of court, uh, of judicial oversight over uh, any intrusion. But the pressure from law enforcement and intelligence agencies to have greater and swifter and easier access to network systems is extremely great because they are up against some uh, very smart and difficult uh, and difficult uh, criminals. And I think we have to watch out for this. And at a certain point, we say no. As it is, the government can already, because ISPs have to store your data, uh, can st must store your data here, any data on the internet, for uh, I think it's six months in the UK. Uh, and government agencies can access that data. They already have uh, you know, fairly extensive oversight into what we get up to uh, on the web, and I think we have to be constantly vigilant about what legislation is passed in this area. I don't know, Peter knows a lot about this. Well, it's, um, what they have to store is communication state, the fact that you um, had a conversation. They can't store the content at the moment. There's a, um, a program in uh, the Home Office called the communications capability development program where they're trying to sort of mix the um, technical problems with a reasonable framework of law and as Misha says the problem is as soon as anybody comes up with a wording and there is I'm convinced um, generally in government a wish to respect um, uh, respect um, privacy and human rights as soon as anybody comes up with a wording um, the law enforcement people come along and say we fully support and endorse your general view it's just that this particular wording this particular strategy that you want well, might be a little tricky operationally and that's been going on for some time if you're really terribly terribly interested in following it up go on the LSE website um, there is um, uh, a rather long briefing note on the previous program, which is called the Interception Modernization Program, um, of which I am the co-author, and um, all the gory details are available there. But there's no doubt it's um, extremely tricky that there are some real technical problems in collecting the material, um, but also some legal problems in turning the general intentions to respect privacy into workable legislation with clear definitions. Very much a point to, uh, to watch and um, I was um, delighted to hear that you brought it up. Next question please. Um, can we uh, go over to the corner there I think I'm just trying to, um, yes the uh, gentleman with the bright green um, stuff on a black t-shirt. Uh, hi uh, my name is Glenn Wintle, um, no affiliate organisation. Um, 
I guess it's trivia to try and work out which one to choose to go with, but I guess the question would be, how did you say America was ahead of the other countries in terms of uh, technology and those things? I uh, mean, how would you even write? Yeah, carry on. Uh, in terms of uh, offensive cyber weaponry, there's uh, no doubt about it. D DARPA, the defense, uh, uh, the defense Department's research agency, has been pouring huge sums of money. In fact, if you if you go from MIT through Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh over to um, Palo Alto, it is very difficult these days to find a computer science program that is not funded uh, funded by uh, DARPA. And uh, uh, this is all the uh, uh, offensive cyber capability is uh, classified. Um, and uh, uh, sorry, I mean that with a, a slight a slight pinch of salt, but DARPA is hugely influential on the West Coast and uh, uh, on, on the East Coast. Um, <clears throat> and I have this essentially from intelligence agents uh, in Europe who were involved in uh, trying to ascertain what the Russians were up to. And uh, whenever they were coming across stuff that Russia was developing, they found that the Americans had got there first. Um, it's also uh, remarkable to see the uh, development that the Israelis are doing. They have a population of 8 million, uh, but they have the most fabulously advanced um, military uh, unit, which cooperates with the software industry uh, in Tel Aviv, the unit 8200. Uh, and out of that uh, uh, out of that unit has um, emerged some of the most powerful cybersecurity companies in the world, billion-dollar companies, which provide um, uh, defense solutions, as they're called, for governments all over the world, including, interestingly, places like China. And they too, uh, they too have big bases in the United States. There are really sort of two components to cyber weaponry. One is the, um, if you like, the technical component. The other thing in order to make it work is the intelligence component because you need to do a lot of research into the target because um, simply having something which has a nasty effect is not a weapon. A, a weapon is something which you can target and that really was the real significance of um, Stuxnet. Um, I noticed one or two people wincing in your, when you were describing it um, uh, I think they were not altogether happy uh, when you said that it was just built up of um, uh, fragments of existing tools. I think there were some zero-day... Uh, oh, right, OK, I've got some... There were four zero-day vul zero zero vulnerabilities, but uh, uh, the con there were several constituent parts which had been culled from criminal... Uh, yes, and there were also some zero-day elements, which I, I think was probably the... Uh, Point. I can see, see a gentleman uh, waving there, but the two ends. Uh, we do, of course, have a capability ourselves. It has been acknowledged by Nick Herbert when he was uh, prodded by a, um, uh, a reporter from The, from the Guardian. So um, we do have a capability. I think what you have to remember is if you are researching cyber weaponry for defensive purposes, then you have practically all the knowledge that you need to um, turn them into offensive capabilities. And if you are running little war games to see how effective you are, then somebody is actually using the weapon. So the interesting question really is not 
is any party who has a cyber weapons, it is what do they think the rules of engagement are going to be? Who says, yes, you can do that? So that's uh, an interesting area. Um, a gentleman there who's asked a question before, I want to try and take me who haven't. Um, uh, blonde lady in the far corner there. <coughs> Well, hello, I'm from Russia, and uh, there is much more going on in Russia than only cybercrime. There is also mobile crime. And um, I also lived a few, a few months in China, and there is also mobile, uh, mobile crime going over there. And I was wondering, do you, when you were doing research, did you come across uh, uh, any information about uh, mobile crime in those countries? And do you think that is going to spread out to the Western world, to Europe and United States, as it was the case with uh, cybercrime? Uh, do you mean uh, in terms of uh, crime perpetrated through mobile devices? Uh, I mean mobile crime uh, with text messages and uh, yeah. using mobile phones to sure, to sure. Well, of course, I mean mobile people. phones are computers, and uh, you can perpetrate cybercrime with handheld devices because uh, they are they are computers uh, but in China they uh, cybercrime is a growing problem for the Chinese authorities um, partly there's been uh, a growth in uh, Chinese language phishing operations but also um, <coughs> uh, the online gaming community in China is uh, subject to widespread scams and frauds perpetrated within uh, within the uh, within the games, um, and uh, in terms of uh, mobile te mobile technology, what we see is a proliferation of devices which can be used for cyber crime, and uh, this will lead to an increase uh, uh, in cyber crime, whether in whether in Russia or in or in the West. There's no doubt about that at all. I mean, in terms of what the international law enforcement agencies are worried about at the moment, they are really worried about the uh, rapid proliferation of handheld devices in Africa. Um, and that is a major concern of theirs. Um, gentleman in the middle there, if we, we can get in there. Um, yes, you, um, around there. We can get. Yes, please. Yes. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, the name's Ewan Grant, a former intelligence analyst with uh, HMRC. Um, two questions, mixture of old <coughs> and new. Um, Cho, he was caught by uh, an undigital mistake. What was that mistake? And um, secondly, on, on the point, the very interesting point about the issues around recruiting for legitimate purposes uh, potential skilled people. Um, but also the, the vulnerable people, the socially reserved people. Um, how far along the lines are we in Europe on that? Because my experience is, and I suspect that many people here, is that an awful lot of organisations, as opposed to individuals, are not really good, particularly now perhaps with human rights legislation, in handling the issue of the gifted but slightly weird person. Um, I mean, I've worked with people who should never have been allowed near the public, but they were allowed 
to deal with the public with disastrous results. Thank you. So in, in terms of uh, the chow busters is that uh, the, uh, the Turkish police were trying to work out how the skimming machines were being exported from Istanbul and uh, so they simply put a, a lot of uh, <coughs> well they went around to the major export companies in Istanbul and uh, gave them detailed explanations of what skimmers look like, what they're likely to be described as and um, uh, after about three or four months one of the major exporting companies came across this package um, while the uh, guy sending it was still in the was, was still in the um, uh, reception area and rang the, rang the police and uh, the police said uh, can you make sure he's on camera and get his IDs and so on and so forth and one of the two telephone numbers that he gave was actually an active telephone number and they were then able to, to track it through that active phone number. That, that, that was a, a breach in security practices by the gang. They shouldn't have been using an active telephone number which could have been traced. Um, and uh, so that was uh, that question. In terms of, I mean, you know, the, I, I'll talk a minute about Jilzy, who's in Wormwood Scrubs at the moment. Um, he, at his trial last year, one of the raft of legislation brought in under the last government, under Tony Blair, uh, when it came to the criminal justice system, was the so-called uh, prevention of crime order. And uh, the judge in Gilsey's case was obliged at the end to give him a mandatory prevention of crime order, which was that for five years after his release from jail, which should be next year, he will only be able to access a computer under police supervision for one hour a week in a public place. <laughs> now, by the time he comes out of jail, it'll be hard getting out of bed without using a computer in one form or another. <clears throat> and of course, what this does for somebody whose only skill is using computers, um, <clears throat> A, it will drive him nuts, but B, because of handheld devices, uh, it's impossible to police that sort of thing, and it will push him towards, uh, to back towards the underground, which is where you do not want him. So one of the things that I've noticed about all the hackers who are in jail is, is there is no program of rehabilitation for them. So to some extent, you know, they have failed partly through their own fault, partly through society's fault by getting in jail in the first place, but then you really have to do something about this, um, and nothing is being done. And so, despite the fact that they have real skills to offer, in terms of I, I, the person who I've spoken to most often about this is Simon Baron Cohen, who's the professor of developmental psychology at Cambridge University, and uh, who uh, who was asked to um, examine Gary McKinnon. Um, uh, by the McKinnon family and he did indeed confirm that McKinnon uh, demonstrates all the classic symptoms of uh, Asperger's and had a secondary con condition of clinical depression and so for me I get very very concerned about the United States push to have McKinnon uh, extradited and I've spoken to Howard Schmidt the senior cyber czar um, in the US about the McKinnon case 
and he articulated the determination of the United States to take McKinnon and uh, you know, try and prosecute for as long a sentence as possible. And I just do not think that this is the way we should be uh, uh, dealing with people in the criminal justice system, whether here or in the United States. So I think there is a lot of work to be done on this. And uh, it's very challenging because it, it, it requires both real sensitivity but also the ability to identify people with, with these skills, that, these skills, that they have these skills on, uh, in technical matters as well. Yes, I've had a small part of the McKinnon case. I had to um, prepare an overnight report to one of the hearings. Um, lady in the front here. Thank you. In regards to international um, law enforcement cooperation, I thought there was a 24 7 network under the Interpol that were set up specifically to deal with cybercrime, regardless of jurisdiction. So, do you know if they're still functional and um, if they're effective at all? Uh, Interpol does not have operational jurisdiction anywhere. Um, at the moment, what is happening is, is that there are attempts to create a uh, European and EU cyber um, uh, operational command. This, of course, as always, is incredibly difficult uh, because certain countries in the EU never like any sort of detailed operation, co -op, operational cooperation in cyber. But it is being discussed, and they are hoping that next year you may have, at the very least, a coordination centre dealing specifically with cybercrime that can uh, uh, assist with operational matters in the European Union and as a way of, say, the US or Russia or whoever it is having a single number to call uh, in Europe uh, for this issue. But it is definitely the way to go that you have got to improve law enforcement cooperation on this issue, but it's extremely difficult. It's something that Peter and I were discussing earlier, where, for example, in the United States, a form of sting operation is seen as uh, a quite common and um, effectively legitimate way of going about uh, combating cybercrime, whereas in Germany you have legislation for historical reasons, whereby if you're a German police officer who is um, <coughs> trying to track, uh, say, a paedophile online, and that paedophile, and you're you know, pretending that you're a 13-year-old girl or whatever, and that paedophile asks you in, a, in an exchange, are you a, German, are you a police officer? And the German officer is obliged to say, yes, I am an officer of the federal police. <laughs> so that, unfortunately, rather... Uh, rather cuts things out in terms of... Uh, um, we do have covert internet investigators here, but the rules are really um, pretty strict. I mean, they are, um, they can sort of observe. They mustn't do anything which looks remotely like encouraging an event to take place which might otherwise not have um, taken place. Interestingly enough, um, the only level, only sort of offence where you do seem to get quite a lot of easy international cooperation is over um, uh, child sexual abuse images. There was um, Operation Cathedral 1998, um, 107 simultaneous arrests in I think about 15 different countries run from here in the, um, in the United Kingdom. But a lot of it depends, um, I think, 
you sort of cover this in your book as well, Misha, depends on the individual officers knowing each other. So I, I, when I speak to law enforcement officers and say this next bit, uh, I'm very popular, I happen to think it's true, it's actually very helpful to send the law enforcement officers on to international conferences because they meet each other and then they know how to trust each other and they can then sort of um, make agreements between themselves to sort the paperwork out afterwards. They go the formal paperwork route, then um, I think we've all seen it can take absolutely, um, uh, absolutely forever. Uh, next question, um, lady over there, I think in the grey, about five flips up there. Thank you, good evening. My name's um, Cheryl Weeks from a consultancy. There seems to be a tension between, as you said, the state responses to cyber, but also that tension between what you've called the careless end user or the need for behavioural change. In between there, you've got large global organisations that span these sort of national jurisdictions. Given there's an increasing overlap um, between people's sort of personal and work, internet lives, use and identity, how have you seen large organisations respond to this? Um, it, uh, it varies greatly from organisation to organisation. One of the first things I would say, which I wanted to say earlier on, is, is that if you're using a computer you really ought to work on the assumption uh, that uh, somebody else may have access to it uh, and that you should certainly not um, write, say, in emails anything that uh, you would object to see being uh, published in a newspaper. You have to be really, really careful about what you do uh, on, the, on, on the web, just as a, as a general matter. In terms of the sort of corporations, well... Corporations are beginning to understand that they have to get their clients to behave in a certain way. So, for example, HSBC now requires that you install a certain type of software rapport um, on your PC uh, if you are to access your bank account over the Internet. Now, that is a good thing. Uh, rapport, as it happens, has a few vulnerabilities, it turns out, but they're fixing that at the moment. That is a good thing because it encourages people to behave in a more responsible way. However, I would argue that you should also make it uh, compulsory for board members and directors of major banks to ensure that their systems are not breached. And if they are breached, that they should pay a penalty. Because if you haven't installed rapport as a consumer, then you will not be compensated for if your account or your credit card is, is compromised. Um, but I think this should apply to the, the corporations as well. At the moment, the banks spend a lot of time trying to avoid explaining if they've been breached or not, such that I came across in the case of Dark Market on more than one occasion police officers finding the banks very difficult to deal with because they were scared of breaches going into open court and the public, the public domain. This issue of whether breaches should be reported, whether they should be publicly reported or privately reported, is now a big issue between government uh, and, uh, and industry. Government wants it because it wants the data, it wants to see what is happening, where, who is attacking, for what purpose and with what instruments. Uh, companies simply don't like 
fessing up to the fact that they are that they are vulnerable. Um, so you have you have a real tension there, but at the same time, it has to be remembered that from the state's point of view, the defence of the so-called critical national infrastructure. Um, power, utilities, telecoms, and so on and so forth, which is a major concern. Um, the critical national infrastructure, certainly in the West, is largely in the hands of the private sector. And so you have got to find ways of communication between the private sector and government in order for a proper national security um, policy to be, to be developed. Um, so you know, <laughs> there are a lot of there are a lot of issues now. Again, here in the United United Kingdom, um, uh, companies will arrogate the rights to themselves to look at their employees' emails, for example. Um, in Finland or in Germany, that is strictly and utterly forbidden. Um, so again, you have these problems of very different approaches in different jurisdictions. Um, which can, can complicate matters if you are a global company. Um, we're running a little bit out of time. Take gentleman over there. How long do you think it will be before you, instead of putting explosives on a drone, you put little devices on it which on impact start interfering with the systems wherever they land? be it military installations, nuclear plants, and stuff like that, as long as they can get there? Uh, well, uh, do you mean electromagnetic pulse systems that disrupt, or do you mean viruses that can sort of walk across ground and then find themselves <laughs> on their way into the <laughs> computer system? Uh, with regard to the electromagnetic disruptive uh, material, I do not know. People are working on this very, very hard. The um, Defence Select Committee have a, um, I think it's just about to start a study on it, and if you, the, the best source of it at the moment, if you go onto the House of Commons website and look at the um, Science and Technology Select Committee, um, you'll find that they um, did take quite a lot of evidence there. That's probably one of the best sort of accounts of the state of the art of the technology as it's available at the moment. I can take one more, um, and I'm obviously going to disappoint a, um, a fair number of people in doing it. Um, since I think the only way to do this is sort of geographically, so the gentleman at the um, back um, up there, it's purely geographic. I don't know who any of you are, but this has to be the last question, unfortunately. Hello, my name is Paul Genshek. I'm not affiliated with any institution. Um, I've got a question about uh, how you can protect yourself, but not technically, but do you know about specific um, uh, insurance products or is there an insurance market to secure yourself, uh, to protect yourself from the civil crimes? Or if it isn't, do you think that would be the way of dealing with this kind of threat by creating a market for for the services which could protect you from this? There is as yet no developed insurance market uh, which deals with this range of threats. Uh, people in the industry are hoping that an insurance market will develop, but at the moment there are no, there are no signs of it. Um, just as a little thing at the end to help you protect yourself, uh, this is partly through technical and partly through commercial techniques. 
Um, the first thing you can all do is, um, is uh, switch from PCs to Macs. And uh, I'm not paid by Apple in any way, shape, or form. But uh, I do know that as over 90% of the world's computer systems uh, are run on Windows-based systems, that people producing malware do not bother to a large extent to produce them from Macs. There are a few Mac viruses uh, knocking around. But another advantage of using a Mac is that uh, companies like Sophos and F-Secure uh, give you Mac antivirus programs for free because they can't be bothered to market them. Uh, so it's doubly cheap in that sense. Now, the only reason that this happens to be the case is because there aren't that many Macs around relative to the number of Windows-based systems. Uh, with the success of iPad and iPhone and generally the increase in uh, uh, Apple's market share, it won't be too long, I don't think, before you will see an increase in Mac viruses all over the place. And so, actually, by recommending it, I'm rather defeating the purpose for myself uh, because I have gone over fully to Mac-based systems. So that's the easiest way to do it. The other thing is, is for God's sake, look at your emails really carefully. Just simple stuff about social engineering, even if it's from a person you know. If you see the strap line or the first two lines of the email or, what, or whatever, look at them and just see if that's the type of language that that person uses. It only takes you a second to uh, analyze whether that's the case or not. And if you do get an email saying, hi there, I'm in Madrid and I've had my passport and my, uh, all my wallet selling, can you send me 150 quid or whatever it is, for God's sake, do us all a favor and write to that person and say, your account has been compromised, clear it now, get in touch with Gmail, sort it out. Because actually that kind of crowd response to um, uh, uh, scams uh, does have an impact on their, on their e effectiveness. There are things that we can all do to make things a, a little easier, but it's not easy. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you.